Every time I hear that magical puck, 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 I wonder, is that the sound of conservation success? Can saving one species, once on the brink of vanishing into the mist, show us the way out of the extinction darkness? My next guest believes it can. I think the mountain gorilla story shows us what is needed if you want to turn the tide for a species. You need decades of investment. You know, this is conservation is not a quick fix. We can't go in and two years later think, okay, we've done it. You need, you know, boots on the ground, decades of, of investment, high levels of investment. And again, really that leadership at the government level that they're behind, you know, behind it and, and pushing it forward. Over the past quarter century, only one species of great ape has managed to beat the extinction odds, but not without incredible help. In 1972, in the Virunga Mountains of Central Africa, apes were under quiet siege. The little-known mountain gorilla was slipping away one gorilla at a time towards the brink of extinction. American gorilla researcher and conservationist Diane Fossey was fearful and launched the Digit Fund to raise conservation awareness. Thirty years later, my next guest journeyed into Rwanda's Virunga Mountains to study these extraordinary creatures. Now, two decades later, she is not only the chief scientific officer, but also the president and CEO of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International. Joining us to celebrate World Gorilla Day is Dr. Tara Stoinski. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and welcome to Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Hi, Tara, and welcome to Talking Apes. It was so great we finally tracked you down. You've been gone all summer to Rwanda, is that right? It is true, yeah, but I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Did you have a chance to see gorillas while you were there? I did, yes. That's fantastic, because I know running an organization can sometimes mean that you never actually see the species you're trying to save all the time. It's very true. I spend a lot less time with them now than I used to, but for good reason, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of used to, um, this is, we're celebrating World Gorilla Day, and that's why we're excited to have you on. This is the fifth anniversary. You were involved in sort of getting that started. So can you just start with that? Tell us a little bit about why this is World Gorilla Day and how it got started and, and why it's important. Yeah. So, you know, a few years ago, there were a lot of days out there. And um, my best friend, Dr. Kristen Lucas, and I were sitting around. She's the um, She and I went to graduate school together. And we said, you know, there really needs to be a World Gorilla Day. Let's rally some people around and establish a World Gorilla Day just as a day to excite people about gorillas, to get information out there. I always say that I'm, I'm shocked. You know, I kind of eat, breathe and sleep gorillas. And I don't realize sometimes that a lot of people don't know how endangered that they are, that we're at risk of losing them. So we just said, let's, let's have a day to celebrate and educate people around gorillas. And we decided that uh, September 24th would be an amazing day because that's actually the day that Diane Fossey established the Karasuki Research Center. So in 2017, which was our 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary of when Diane Fossey started that groundbreaking work, that was the first World Gorilla Day. At this point, after five years, is World Gorilla Day doing what you hoped it would do? Is it reaching people? 
Definitely. I, I mean, every year I'm amazed um, at the number of people that are talking about it or, you know, we have corporate sponsors that come on and want to get the word out. But certainly we can always use more information. I mean, it, we're in an information overload and I think it's really hard for, for a lot of things to get bandwidth and conservation is one of them. But we're, you know, we're trying our hardest to just celebrate these amazing animals, get the stories out there about them and, and bring people along on the journey about why gorillas are important and why we need to conserve them. Well, speaking about how amazing they are, I wanted to ask you, I mean, the obvious question would be like, tell us about the first time you ever saw a mountain gorilla, but I'd actually like to back up about 24 hours from there. Can you tell us about the first time that you went to uh, Rwanda, I assume was where you saw mountain gorillas for the first time and what you were thinking, what, what, what were you anticipating? Because I, in, in guiding people to see mountain gorillas and talking to people who have seen them, I mean, the anticipation behind seeing this amazing animal is pretty intense for a lot of people. And I wonder what it was like for you. It was thrilling. I mean, I had been working in Africa for almost a decade at that point, but never with gorillas. And I actually first went over in 2002. Uh, we were hosting an event to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the discovery of mountain gorillas. And so I went for that event and then was able to come back and really start actually doing research on them, which was my job at the time. I was, uh, you know, a scientist. And what was really neat about the the gorillas that the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund was monitoring is that these groups were quite large. So an average gorilla group is about 10 individuals. And there are four types of gorillas. And in three of them, really, you just have a single male living in the group. So a group is a single male, females and their kids. But mountain gorillas are really unique. And they can live in these big multi-male, multi-female groups. And my background was in studying male behavior. So the idea to get to go and, and go to groups that were 25 gorillas, 40 Five gorillas and see eight or nine males coexisting together. I was, you know, that to me was the, from a scientific standpoint, was what I was really excited about. And and what what about that was, I guess, memorable? But what about that? Did when you got to see that many males in a group, what what was one of the first things that you just went, whoa, that was not what I was expecting. Well, you know, it's. It's an extra, if you think about it, kind of, it's an extra ton of testosterone that's living in a gorilla group, right? So, and, and yeah, so what does that mean? You know, for females, suddenly they have choices. There's not just one male in the group for them to mate with. And for males, now they have competition. So I was really curious to see how this would all play out. And I think one of the things that surprised me is, which is, you know, Typical of gorillas, there is no one one answer to this question. So I went into Beats Me's group, which Titus was leading at the time. And Titus was a very chill male, very relaxed. Most of the males that were in that group were his sons. And, you know, there was very little competition. All the males could be sitting near each other. Everyone was just belch vocalizing, you know, very relaxed. And then you go into Shinda's group and Shinda was a dominant male and he had a completely different personality. He was a bit of a despot and aggressive. And, you know, he gave me kind of my first gorilla experience when I came into the group and he charged me and he sniffed me and, you know, tried to let me know my place in the group. So it was this instant understanding that, hey, just because you have eight males in the group, it can still be just as peaceful as maybe if, as if there was one, or it could be a much more tense situation. You could sort of feel the tension in Shinda's group among these males, even if they weren't fighting, it was just not nearly as comfortable a situation as it was in Beats hmm. Me's group. And how large was that group? 
They were both at the time wow. around 25 individuals. And then Pablo's group was quite a bit larger. I think probably at that time it was in the 40s, got up to 65. So the biggest guerrilla group known mm. in the world um, at the time it was in the 40s. Speaking of numbers, um, oh, let's just jump to a conservation question um, right out of the gate. It's, you know, when I when I first went there in 89, 90, 1989 or 90, um, at the urging of Jane Goodall, actually, is it was because there were only a couple, two to 250 uh, mountain gorillas. And, and we, the Bawindi groups in Uganda hadn't been included at that point. So it was really focused on uh, the animals that were in the Virungas of, of Rwanda, just tiptoeing into Uganda and then in D, in. Democratic Republic of Congo. And part of the reason that she urged me to go up there and start filming was the fact that she just didn't believe that five years from that point, there would be any mountain gorillas left in the world. And now we have over 1,100 and you're, you're a big part of why we have that many gorillas in the world. You personally, but also the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. So what, what, have, been the, what have been the key things that you think have made that possible and why the public is so much more aware of mountain gorillas than other species of gorillas? Uh, when, yeah, when you were right after, right before you visited, Jerry, was that there was a census done in the early 80s and that was sort of the nadir of the population. It was down around two, estimated to be around 250 individuals. And Diane Fossey, before she had died, you know, she estimated that mountain gorillas would likely be extinct before the year 2000. And as you just said, they are increasing in number. And actually, they're the only great ape in the wild that is increasing. And I think the reason for that is multifold. I mean, I think a lot of it is owed to Diane Fossey, not just because she was there protecting them, but she also just she completely changed public perception of them. So before she went, they were King Kong, ferocious, scary beasts. And by getting to know them as individuals and embedding herself in their families, she told a very different story about these gentle giants and, um, and made people, you know, her, her photo on the cover of National Geographic, uh, you know, she made people fall in love with them. And then a movie was made about her life, which was planned before she died anyway, but a movie to make about her life with the gorillas. And so people got to see it on the big screen and see this relationship that she had with them. So it changed public perception. And I think it made people say, well, I want to do that. I want to go see the gorillas. And so ecotourism for mountain gorillas has, I think, really contributed to a, a large part of the conservation success because these animals are actually helping to, to build their country. They are the number one source of foreign revenue for the country of Rwanda. So they've really you know, brought a lot of, of money into the country. And the government is also a huge part of this because they are are really leading the charge for conservation. Rwanda is a very forward thinking country when it comes to conservation. So, you know, you have people realizing how special these animals are. You have um, economic revenue that they are bringing to their country. You have governments that have gotten behind and, and realized the value of conservation. I, mean, I think all of those have worked together really well to change the course for this, you know, species that a lot of people like like Jane and Diane thought would be gone. The fund has been one of the big drivers of the science and the conservation there. How have you found just in general the reception of the government to your ideas about what you need to in terms of conservation? I mean, they seem incredibly open um, to, to, to fostering this relationship with the public in Rwanda about the mountain gorilla. Because I know when, when I first went there, I mean – 
people just beyond the boundaries of the park didn't even know there were gorillas up there. It, it was, you know, and now it seems like every school child in Rwanda sees it as the national animal. How do you see your role and the government's role in promoting that and in making that happen? I think the vision of the, the government in several places has been hugely successful um, in, in promoting this. First, you know, sharing the revenue of the park with the local communities. So 10% of gorilla permit costs are shared with the local communities for improvement in their daily lives. And so that's a huge positive. The communities directly benefit from gorillas and from gorilla tourism. Uh, another uh, thing that the government did, uh, which I think is amazing, is they started, I think we're on year 17 now, they started a ceremony to name all of the baby gorillas that are born each year. It's called Quita Azina. And I've been lucky enough to go. I was lucky enough to name a baby gorilla actually after Diane in 2017 in honor of uh, the 50th anniversary of, of her work. But this event is attended by tens of thousands of people. It's almost like a national holiday. And every baby gets a name um, in the same tradition that Rwandan children get a name. So it's what's, what was happening in the community or the country or in that group when that baby was born. And so I think just making these animals a national source of pride by not excluding people from conservation, but including them, you know, doing the revenue sharing program, really talking about the importance of the gorillas. And, and that is our role to complement the work that the government is doing there. So we work a lot in local schools to just bring educational messages about gorillas and how they're unique to Rwanda. And this is, you know, the biological heritage of, of these, these school children. Um, so it's a concerted effort, but really, the government's been really proactive in getting that message out there and helping people benefit directly and also realize the special value of these animals to the country. Your motto, helping people um, saving gorillas. I mean, is is that the kind of thing you're talking about when you're talking about helping people? Because most people, I mean, most people would look at that motto and go, Completely. wait a second, you're a gorilla group. You're a species conservation group. Where, where's the people yeah, exactly. part of this? Yeah, I, I think modern models of conservation have to include people and have to recognize that ultimately conservation is about people. And particularly in a place like Rwanda, where you have very high human population densities, you know, Jerry, you've been there, very high human population de densities living directly adjacent to the animals. So there's no way that conservation is going to succeed if the communities aren't on board. And so making sure that they are benefiting from conservation, that they are part of it. You know, our, our, work focuses a lot on the root causes that people still need to rely on the park. So whether it be livelihoods or food security or water security. So trying to enable people, you know, help people in those areas. So they don't need to rely on the park to find sources of meat or they don't need to rely on the park to, to get water. Uh, we also focus, as I mentioned, a lot on education. So not just educating the local communities, but also really working very closely with institutions of higher learning in the country to educate that next generation of African conservationists. Because in the long term, that is the only way that conservation is going to succeed if people feel like they're a part of it and they're benefiting from it. And also their basic needs are met. You know, no one really wants to be a poacher. People are going in and, and they're not hunting gorillas in Rwanda. I want to make that really clear. They're going in and setting snares for antelope and other small animals. But no one wants to do that. If you have a source of meat that's easy to get and you can afford, that's outside the forest. So trying to work in those areas um, so that it's a win-win. The animals, um, you know, benefit as well as the people. I I think that's a really important, important point that you bring up that in general, people do not want to be poachers. Um, you know, I've, I've 
had a chance to speak with a lot of poachers uh, across Equatorial Africa in particular. And every one of them that has gotten out of the business, it's because they've nearly died at some point. They've either been injured, they've been cut, they've been attacked by the animal, whatever. And they realize that, you know, it's better to be a farmer. It's better to be earn a living in another way and be around for their families. So I think there's a misconception. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to distinguish from, say, ivory poaching or rhino horn poaching, which is really for an external market that people that are, as opposed to people that are really doing it to feed their families for subsistence, you know, hunting. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the amount of conservation effort that has gone into saving gorillas there, um, there's a term called extreme conservation. How much credit would you put at the foot of extreme conservation if it's all those things combined? And a second part of that question, I guess I'd like to ask you is, is it a realistic model for saving other gorilla species, for saving other great ape species as we go forward? Those are really excellent questions, Jerry. And um, I think I think extreme conservation is very much uh, responsible for the what we've seen with mountain gorillas. And we were actually able to show this uh, a few years ago. We worked on a paper with a lot of collaborators led by the Max Planck Institute. And there was this really interesting sort of natural experiment that happened. I'm going to be a geeky scientist for a minute. But basically every single gorilla, mountain gorilla lives in a national park. So they're afforded some level of protection. And actually these parks are fairly well protected. The number of, of guards that are in mountain gorilla habitat is 20 times kind of the average in in the world average. So they, they're, they're pretty heavy, heavily protected. But then you've got this subset within there that have this daily monitoring, like that's done by the Fosse Fund or the government of Rwanda, where every single day our teams go and we have, we are check on every gorilla under our care. So I always say, it's like when you come home from a day at work and you check on your spouse or your kids or your pets and you make sure everyone's accountable for that is what we do 365 days a year. And if an animal is missing, a patrol is organized to find it and see if it got caught in a snare. If an animal is ill, we'll notify gorilla doctors so they can come and assess it. And what we were able to do is show that the, the growth in the population that had occurred actually was limited to those groups that had this extra level of protection. So the other gorillas that were living in the national park but didn't have these people checking on them every day, their population had actually declined slightly. So really it was this extreme conservation of having folks there every single day checking on them um, that was responsible at that time for the growth. So I definitely think it is a significant part of it. You know, when you get down to several hundred individuals left, that is the type of effort that's really needed, particularly when you're talking about gorillas, which are slow to mature, slow to reproduce. These guys can't recover overnight. They need this level of protection. But your question is a good one. Is this sustainable and is this practical everywhere? And I would, I, there's kind of two answers to that. First of all, I think that we, that one of the biggest challenges in conservation is that it's not well-funded. We need so much more money to be going into protecting our planet if we really want to change the tide you know for the spe for for species a million species right now are at risk of extinction and roughly the estimate is roughly 3% of philanthropic dollars actually go into the environment so my argument first and foremost would be you know i think the mountain gorilla story shows us what is needed if you want to turn the tide for a species you need 
decades of investment. You know, this is conservation is not a quick fix. We can't go in and two years later think, okay, we've done it. You need, you know, boots on the ground, decades of, of investment, high levels of investment. And again, really that leadership at the government level that they're behind, you know, behind it and, and pushing it forward. On the flip side, though, I would say that, you know, some of the models that we're seeing suggest that, that different approaches to conservation can be just as effective. So, in, for example, in Congo, where we work protecting growers gorillas, which is another subspecies, there, unlike the mountain gorillas, the vast majority of them are found outside of national parks. They're living in community forests. So they have no formal protection. And so our model there has been to go in and work with local communities who really want to protect these forests. They're very closely tied to them, um, but they don't have the means to do it. And so by working with them, they agree, we're not going to hunt endangered species. We're not going to hunt gorillas and chimps. And in exchange for that, we employ them to come in as trackers and we do community work like I referenced earlier. And what we find is because the community has bought into this is benefiting us, we can protect much larger areas with a much smaller footprint. So, for example, there, I was just doing these numbers the other day, but we have, I think, three trackers per 100 kilometers. We're protecting a large area. We have three trackers roughly per 100 kilometers. In the Virungas, there are 50 trackers per 100 kilometers. So, you know, magnitude, tenfold magnitude of difference. So, again, I think it goes to what we were chatting about earlier, that if we engage local communities and we make them part of this rather than excluding them, but they're part of the conservation equation, that hopefully we could maybe do it with a little bit less of that heavy-handed footprint that we were just talking about earlier for mountain gorillas. But we have more time with growers gorillas. We have over 6,000 of them left, and they've got lots of beautiful habitat left. So, But what we don't want to see is we don't want to see ourselves in the situation we found ourselves with mountain gorillas, where you're down to just a few hundred individuals, and the vast majority of their habitat is gone. So that's a very long answer to your question, but but hopefully I got to the point. No, it was a great answer. And I, I actually want to follow up on a couple of points of it. One on the sustainability issue. How does that impact or change the conservation strategy that you have to employ and think through? And then other, we'll talk about growers uh, in a little more detail. Great question. I think it, you know, one of the the big messages is that it means that, you know, every bit of habitat that is left for these animals needs to be protected. We can't lose any more mountain gorilla habitat. And the great news is we really aren't. The, the, you know, that habitat is very well protected. And the Rwandan government right now, for example, is is thinking very proactively about expanding it, actually, of bringing park, park habitat back. So creating more habitat for these individuals. Um, but when you talk about sustainability, too, Jerry, I think a really important point to make, you know, in Rwanda, part of what has enabled that much concerted effort to go into conservation is that you have ecotourism, which pays for a lot of those park costs. Um, and I think one of the things that we saw in this last year and a half is that we cannot rely on ecotourism solely to fund conservation. Because if you have one natural disaster, like, you know, a pandemic, or if you have a global recession and tourism goes away, that money dries up. And then, you know, we've seen it all across Africa where poaching increased and people, you know, people, local people were no longer benefiting from conservation. So I always say, just like a financial advisor would never advise someone to put all of their stock, you know, all of their money in one stock, you know, you need a diversified portfolio when it comes to conservation. So certainly tourism is part of it. But we need to have a lot more strategies, uh, particularly as you're saying, you know, it's not just now the immediate threat that humans are, are placing 
wild places in, in terms of poaching or deforestation or habitat degradation. But now we have climate change, which basically is pushing down in a whole different direction. The question I get asked oftentimes is, Tara, there's so many challenges out there. There's, you know, um, poverty and education needs and healthcare needs. Why gorillas? Like, why would I care about gorillas, something that's happening around the world? And we're really trying to help people understand that, well, first of all, intrinsically, these animals have incredible value. They're one of our closest living relatives. And so if we can't make space for a thousand mountain gorillas on this planet, you know, I feel like as a species, we really need to look internally. And, and what does that say about us? But, you know, we say it's, it's gorillas live in the second largest standing rainforest on the planet, the Congo Basin. They are the gardeners of this planet. They take care, I mean, of those forests, they take care of them. You know, they, they, they're environmental engineers. By moving through the forest, they create gaps in the canopy that let new plants grow. They, you know, they disperse seeds by eating fruit and then moving along. And so they, take care of these forests. And these forests are one of our best natural defenses against climate change. And so ultimately, we could be completely selfish about it and say, by protecting gorillas, we're ultimately protecting ourselves and future generations, because we need these forests to remain intact from a, from a, climate, chance, a climate change standpoint. But gosh, what we have learned this year is we need it, need it from a human health standpoint. You know, these global pandemics like we're seeing with COVID-19, this is the direct result of animals and humans coming together. And we're having these that creates the opportunity for diseases to, to move from one to the other. So the more we're able to keep these ecosystems intact, the better off we are going to be as a species. So we've really tried to, to start putting, framing that message into these larger issues. Um, it's, you know, it's not just about this cute, adorable gorilla, but we're really talking about, you know, to me, climate change is the biggest existential threat facing humans um, and, our, and our planet. And gorillas can help us in that respect if we help them. Hi, folks. This is Meg Stark, producer of Talking Apes and all-around primate enthusiast. We love connecting you to the people who are at the forefront of ape conservation and research around the world, but we need your help. Your support gives apes a voice, and you can help us spread their voices even further by supporting Talking Apes with a monthly donation at globio.org slash donate. That's G-L-O-B-I-O dot org backslash donate. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to the show. I'd like to turn to growers, which are right right next door to the mountain gorillas, because they are even deeper into the Congo Basin um, in that forest. Maybe you could just, for those not familiar with that gorilla, I think it's probably the least known of all of the the, the great ape species. Um, maybe you could describe it a bit and describe some of the work that you guys are doing there. Would love to. Yeah. So there's four types of gorillas, Two species, the Western and the Eastern, and then each of those species has two subspecies. So at the Fossey Fund, we work with both species, uh, both subspecies of Eastern gorilla. So the mountain gorilla, which we've talked a lot about, which were made famous by Diane Fossey, and then the Growers gorilla. We started working with them about 2001, and we were looking for the opportunity to expand and really felt like that was the next conservation frontier, was saving these animals. And the the scary thing with Grower's gorillas is, yeah, they're they're the least known, I would say, of the four gorilla subspecies. Um, but what we do know about them is that we've lost an estimated 60% of them in a, a single generation, which is about a 25-year period. 
So if those, if that rate of decline were to continue, you know, they could be extinct within a few decades. And what were the main drivers of that loss? So unlike mountain gorillas, which there we're dealing with things like just small habitat, small population size, the big driver for growers was direct poaching, direct poaching for food. And this ultimately was driven a lot by the conflict that has, so they are only found in Eastern DRC, which anyone who's familiar with Eastern DRC, it's, it's been a very tumultuous conflict, um, ridden part of our planet, unfortunately, since the mid 1990s, uh, an estimated 5 million people have died there, not from direct conflict, but just from lack of access to healthcare and, and food resources. I think it has the second highest level of people living in extreme poverty. And then you've got the Grower's Gorilla sort of smack dab in the middle of that. And a lot of this conflict has been driven around conflict minerals. So Congo, the Congo Basin, and particularly Eastern DRC, is very rich in a number of minerals that are important for Example are small electronics like cell phones and computers. And so just like a lot of people have heard of conflict diamonds, um, there are conflict minerals where rebel groups will control mines. And basically to feed these miners, they, you know, they hunt in the forest. And so that has resulted in elephants disappearing from a lot of area of these areas, grade eight populations really plummeting, um, uh, as a direct result of that. Yeah, that's, um, and it's been that way for a long time. I know that the conflict mineral issue stretches all the way back to, all the way back to World War II, actually. So it's been a, it's been a, a difficult place to, for people to just live, much less do conservation work and other things. I agree. And, you know, that's, it's one of the reasons why I find you know, the groups that the, the, the communities that we work with so incredibly inspiring because, I mean, as I mentioned, they are extremely poor, but they value, they really value their biodiversity. And so we are working with them to help them conserve their forests in the long term and, you know, have taken this, this community. So about five years ago, roughly, the Congolese government put in place a law where, where, traditional land ownership rights could be recognized. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been working with local communities. They've set aside their land. They said, we want this to be a community conservation area. And then we have supported them to go to the government and actually get their traditional land rights recognized. And so the area where we work, which we call the Incuba Conservation Area, which was about 1,500 square kilometers, um, just on Earth Day, actually, we announced had officially, after a several year process, gotten its official recognition from the Congolese government. And we've entered into a 25 year management agreement with them where we will, we are coming in and we're supporting the actual work then to do the conservation. Because as we talked about, it's one thing to have an area as a conservation spot, but you've actually got to be enforcing that and patrolling it and have teams on the ground that are out there and that, that are the eyes and ears looking for for anthropogenic disturbances. And it's been an incredible. And recently when we had we had an event with them and one of the things that was so moving to me was they said, doing this work has enabled us to help to keep our children in school. And that's one of the things that we do. We help provide school fees to keep their children in school. And that is one of the biggest benefits that they feel something as simple as we want our children to be able to stay in school and to graduate. And so the, it's, I find it incredibly inspirational to work alongside of these communities um, to protect these areas. And again, the work that they're doing is not just helping them. It's, it's helping our planet. Yeah, exactly. So what, 
where are we for for those who aren't familiar with the grower? Where are we now with population with them? There, the about four years ago, there was a study that came out that that uh, had estimated that their population had declined by eighty percent, and that we had about thirty eight hundred left. The challenge there is because it is such a challenging area to work and there's lots of areas that are insecure, those numbers are generally generated on a little survey is done in a teeny tiny part of the habitat and then we kind of extrapolate from there. So recently, the Wildlife Conservation Society, who had led that paper, led another study and just earlier this year, they revised those numbers. So now the estimates are roughly around 65 or 6,800 which is great news, but I think it's really important to emphasize that that's not because the numbers are going up. It's just because we have better data than we did four years ago. So the numbers are still going down. And actually, they found in Cahuzibiega National Park, which is one of the two national parks where Grower's gorillas are found, the numbers had actually declined quite dramatically. So while what it means is it basically gives us a, a higher baseline, we're really lucky we're, we're starting at a higher number of animals, but we're still losing them. And so conservation efforts really need to step up in, in that part of the world to make sure that the species you know, doesn't decline anymore, or even worse, go extinct. That seems like such a critical issue around, uh, especially something like great apes, because one of the, to me, one of the reasons that mountain gorillas some of the efforts have been so successful is because you know what you're working with. And it seems like with so many of the other great apes, we don't even know how many we have. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you take Western lowland gorillas, it, it's the most seen gorilla on the planet because it's the only one in zoos. So hundreds of thousands of people, millions probably get to see them. But yet in the wild, we really don't even know how many exist. Exactly. I, I tell people that all the time. Like one of the hardest scientific questions we have to answer is how many of these animals are left? You have to know how many you have and, and you have to know what population trends are doing to be, be basically be able to, to figure out conservation strategies. And I think when I started working with Western lowlands, we thought there were 80,000 left. And now the number is upwards of like 350,000. And again, it's not because they're increasing, but luckily we're getting better and better data and it's giving us this higher baseline. But the, the, the truth of the matter is they're, they're still declining and they still need conservation efforts. So, but yeah, it's one of the hardest things is just knowing how many of these individuals are even left on the planet. And, and, and where they are, one of the things that I, I read, and I don't know if it was, I think it was actually out of a, out of the paper on Growers that uh, was co-authored by, um, you, by you guys, is that a lot of these populations are tiny and they're very isolated. So you, you've got all these little islands of population around and they don't have any chance to do genetic exchange or, you know, come in, come in contact with one another. So all it takes is, and, uh, you know, they're very susceptible to zoonotic diseases like Ebola. So all it takes is, you know, or a cold or pneumonia, <laughs> respiratory diseases like COVID. So it doesn't take much to wipe out these little populations, you know, in isolation. And then you make a huge, huge dent genetically into the group. So what... Coming back to mountain gorillas and, and your work there, what are some of the precautions that are, are taken to protect mountain gorillas, for example, from something like, like COVID and other human diseases? COVID has really been a huge challenge, and I am incredibly impressed with our team. So when COVID hit, we are, our trackers 
they usually go in and out of the forest every day. So they go in in the morning and then they come out at night. And so we uh, immediately put them into isolated rotations. So now they all get tested. Um, they go in and they're in a month long rotation where they're separated from their families. Uh, they work for a month long and then they come out and they've been doing this now for, for 19 months, roughly. Um, and I think we can all remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, how incredibly scary it was. We, we didn't really understand this disease. You know, I just wanted to take my two kids and like lock ourselves in our house and not go anywhere. And here we have these trackers that are, 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 are away from their families basically to be out there protecting the gorillas. Uh, we also stopped a lot of our in-depth behavioral research. So we are the world's longest running study of gorillas. I mean, every single day, these gorillas, basically everything they do is getting recorded and we have not yet resumed that, um, basically because we're trying to keep a further distance from them and also stay with them for shorter period in close proximity for shorter periods of the day. So we try and stay seven to 10 meters away, wearing masks, again, having everyone tested. We've been extremely lucky. The government of Rwanda prioritized vaccinating all of the people working with gorillas. So all of our team has been vaccinated, which was a huge relief for them as well as, you know, for the gorillas. So, um, no, that, that's, that's amazing. And again, that's, that's part of that extreme conservation we were just referring to that it, that it takes to ensure that they're, I, 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 well, and I just to your point earlier too, Jerry, like it also costs more money, you know, for us now we're feeding everybody. We had to rehab our camp so that they could stay up there. We have to provide, you know, we're, we're testing, providing protective equipment. So all of that protection level, you know, just increases the cost that it, it does. To it was exactly where I was going with the next, my next point was that just, it really does up the cost that I'd be curious. I don't know if it's something, you know, off the top of your head, but what is, what is the cost of a gorilla? Have, I'm sure you must have done some kind of estimates to talk to talk to donors and talk to funders about their involvement. But what does it cost us to keep a gorilla, mountain gorilla, on this planet? I actually I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, there's so much that goes into it because someone could say, "Oh, well, it's a tracker salary," but you know, we have. Uh, 85 trackers and those trackers need vehicles and they need equipment and we need drivers and we need an administration team to actually, you know, do all the human resources to be able to pay the trackers and get their health insurance and all of that. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I sometimes think that that's kind of missing the bigger picture that in order, it's not, it, there's a whole infrastructure that needs to be in place to save these animals. And, you know, we're only a small piece of the infrastructure. There's, we help protect half of the, the gorilla families that remain in Rwanda, and then the government protects the other half. And then you've got, you know, teams that are actually not necessarily with the gorillas, but they are out doing larger surveillance, looking for snares and other things. Um, we have a whole set of our, our work that's surrounded, centered around biodiversity. Because I, I thought your, your point earlier was interesting when you, we talk, you talk about great apes being the canary in the coal mine. I think Probably for humans, they are. But one of the things that we've learned is that they're actually not really good canaries in the coal mine for the health of their overall ecosystems. And that's because they're a lot like us. <laughs> you know, um, they are, I mean, they're intelligent. They have really broad diets. They, they're not reliant on a single location to breed or a single location to raise their offspring. So what we have found through through collaborative studies that we've done is that they're buffered from climate a little bit more than, say, an amphibian that has to be in a wetland or a bird that's, you know, dependent on a particular location to raise its young. 
And so we do a lot of studies of the larger biodiversity because ultimately we need to know that gorilla's habitat is secure for the gorillas to be secure. And then as we talked about, there's the whole human side of conservation. You know, you can, is, what do you use to calculate it? Is it the people that are in the forest protecting them? Or is it also our teams that are out, you know, doing food and, and livelihood security work? So I think to me, you know, the, the question is just, it's, it's just understanding that we as a collective community it's not Rwanda's responsibility to save mountain gorillas. It's not Congo's responsibility. It is all of our responsibilities. And so we all, I feel like, have to step up and realize that we we are all doing shoe, things on a shoestring. And it, it's exhausting after a certain period of time. And if we want these animals to be around, we really need to be thinking of strategies longer term of how we um, endow these national parks or provide, you know, more financial resiliency than we might, than we see right now. And again, this last year was a perfect example. I, of yeah, that. that that was actually my next question is, you know, their importance in the grand scheme of things. And I think, I think you answered a, a lot of it right there is, um, is, is putting them in place. And mountain gorillas do get the focus, but as, as you said, the biodiversity of this area is really pretty amazing. I mean, it's, it's the broader area called the, the Abertine Rift and the, uh, it's some of the most biodiverse in all of Africa, um, in, in terms of mm -hmm. the flora and fauna there. I remember when I first started working there, I would bump into little lizards and, you know, chameleons and plants and orchids. And I'd ask people and nobody had a clue. I mean, they were just like yeah. no clue at all yeah. what this stuff was. There were no guidebooks mm -hmm. to it. And, mm -hmm. you know, so just from a, in a bird watching standpoint, you know, you go in and here's all the stuff flying yeah. around and you have no clue what it is. So there's a, there's a yeah. lot more there than gorillas. You're right. Unfortunately, um, yeah. I don't think a lot of people think of going there for, for things other than gorillas. Which is which is uh, unfortunate. No. Yeah, I mean, there's even there's other primates yeah. there. Yeah, golden monkeys, which are amazing. But I feel like if if we can use gorillas as an umbrella species, you know, when we protect gorillas, we are hopefully protecting that, and you know, they need a, they need an ecosystem in which to live. So, you know, I'm okay with with us sort of pushing gorillas knowing that, that that is what captures people. That's, you know, people connect with them. They, they see the, the common humanity that we share. You know, we can tell stories about gorillas that people can directly relate to. I always say they have friends, they have enemies, they form, you know, lifelong bonds, they grieve their dead and people can connect to that. And so we can use that as an entry point to them, protect this entire ecosystem. And, and we can let the bird, you know, we have members of staff on our team. They know every plant, they know all the amphibians, they know all the birds. I, and I, I love that they have this knowledge and I feel I feel safe in the conservation of this region, knowing that we have people that are focusing on that. And so we can just kind of use the gorillas to make sure all of that stays safe. So going. There's a lot riding on those big backs. I mean, there's a reason their backs there are so big, a, right, Jerry? There's a lot there riding is a on reason them. Those backs are, their shoulders yeah. are so broad. They carry the weight, don't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. so going forward with with the fund. Where where do you mm -hmm. see the next decade? Where do you see the priorities for you as the as the director and and the the leader, uh, physical and spiritual? And I I don't know where where you put yourself mm -hmm. in all of that. But where do you, where do you see pushing uh, the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund uh, to make the biggest difference? 
it's such an exciting time um, in this organization's history. And I feel incredibly lucky to be, you know, getting to work with this amazing team with all of our partners and on the, you know, speaking of backs on the backs of all the, the many, many people that contributed to mountain gorilla conservation. And were part of this, you know, this organization's history, including you, Jerry, you know, I'm, I'm just one of many, many people that has had an opportunity to work with these incredible animals. And what I'm most excited about, you know, we're growing so much both in Rwanda and Congo. So in Rwanda, we embarked on a really ambitious goal to build our first permanent home. So we have not, you know, we used to, when Diane was there and, and when you were there, we operated out of the forest and, and Karasuki was up in the mountains. And that hasn't been the case since the nineties, since after the genocide. And we've operated out of houses and then we had two houses and then we finally moved into an office building, but we've never had purpose-built space. We're far from the park now. We're in a, in a town that's about 45 minutes from where we operate out of the park. We're far from the communities that we serve. And so for our 50th anniversary, our board made the commitment to building a permanent home, not just for us to live in, but really to help Rwanda move its conservation goals forward. And so we'll be opening that later this year. It's called the Ellen DeGeneres Campus of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. And what I really see in the next you know, five to 10 years is that this will be uh, I hope a regional and even continent-wide center for for exciting people about conservation and training the next generation of of conservation leaders to face what we know are really significant challenges that we're going to have in, in in conservation in the future. So I hope it'll be a dynamic place where we'll have students from all over the continent that are coming and working with international researchers and community members and just really be a place of learning and energy and exciting people about um, about conservation, using gorillas as kind of that entry point, but then once people are there, and we've really designed it with all of our stakeholders in mind, whether it be tourists that are coming to Rwanda or community members who we work with or the students that we work with or our partners, we, all, we, we wanted everyone to feel like they had a space there and there was a way for their journey and their uh, in conservation to advance as part of it. So I feel like that will be a really big focus for us in Rwanda, certainly in the near future, getting that open and getting all the programmatic work up and going. I think that's what excites me the most about it too. And, and, and the work you're doing is the fact that it's so inclusive. I mean, for so many decades, conservation in Africa was really a, a, a white endeavor, a white endeavor from Europe and America. And and it seems as though it's become much more, whether it's the work that you're doing or guerrilla doctors or whatever, it's much more inclusive and much more, um, lack of be a better word, locally based. It's, it's, you know, it's Rwandans taking ownership. It's Congolese taking ownership. It's, you know, wherever it is across the continent, it just more and more. And the idea of having a facility that addresses that and addresses those needs and thinks um, through that perspective of how, how to create conservation that works on the, on the continent um, rather than being imported. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we we have about 240 staff now in Africa, and all but four of them are either Rwandan or Congolese. So very much um, African-led and run organization on the ground. But where we still see a struggle, I feel like, is it, particularly in science. 
Um, you know, a lot of science is still not being led by, uh, you know, science being done on, on African wildlife is, is not being led by African conservation or African scientists. And that's really an area where we feel very strongly and, and, and want to change that. And I'm really proud. We've worked with the University of Rwanda now since the early 2000s. Um, with a, we have a series of programs where we bring students through, but in their senior year, we usually sponsor 10 to 12 students who come and they do their senior thesis with us. And these students are publishing these papers in scientific journals, which makes me so proud. I mean, you know, I don't know that most undergrads anywhere are publishing a scientific paper, you know, based on research they did as an undergraduate. And so to see this cadre of students getting this recognition, going through the scientific process, going out and collecting, these are all their own data that they collect. They can't use any of our sort of archival data. They have to design a study, go out and, and we, you know, collect the data, come back and we support them through that whole process. And now they're publishing papers, they're going on and getting masters and PhDs. That's what I'm most excited to see us be able to do more of. Um, you know, in this, with this new campus, I think it's really going to accelerate our work, our work there. And then on the Congolese side, you know, we, we just had this big, you know, a momentous event this year where the, this community forest we've been working in now for over a decade got official recognition and we're working on expanding that. So right now we're protecting, I think, a little over 350 million acres. Of wait, 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 time out, time out. Get to over half. 350 million? Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I'm trying to, do you have, do you have a parallel? Like, what is that? I'm trying to envision what 350 million acres it's looks huge. like. It's huge. That's a good question. Um, I mean, you know, you think about it, it's right now it's 1,583 square kilometers. I think, um, uh, Volcanoes National Park is 147 square kilometers. I mean, when you think about that, I mean, it's huge. And the goal is to get to over half a million, um, um, there. And so, and the, the great part about that is it's strategically located between Cahuzzi Biega and Maiko. So again, wanting to ensure that we keep these wildlife corridors intact. And, you know, one of the potentially, I hate to say positive, but as a result of the, the civil conflict in Eastern DRC, I think extractive industries like large scale logging or large scale you know, um, agricultural conversion haven't moved in. We've actually lost in this area, we've lost less than 0.01% of these forests over the last 10 years. So they really are intact forests. So can we get in there now before these industries maybe move in and get these forests the protection they need? Um, that's really our goal on the Congolese side. And we're really excited about that. But yeah, the the scale of the landscape is unbelievable compared to what's left for mountain gorillas. Yeah, and and again, the scale of the landscape is critical because, as we were talking about before, it is the lung of the planet or one of the lungs of the planet. So it's not you're not just protecting gorilla habitat; you're protecting us. Yeah, that is so exciting. I that that. That's the kind of conservation. That's kind of scale that I get really excited about. Because that makes a, it just makes an incredible change, and it gives hope to. I mean, it. I mean, with the I, <coughs> excuse me, with the uh, the IC or the IPCC report coming out, and and all the dire news that came out of that, it's really easy, I think, for people to get pretty depressed about the state of the planet. But I think news like that and talking about that a lot more and the potential of that is what we need to hear a lot more about to keep our just keep our hope alive but hope in a real sense not sort of pixie dust of hope but but real hope that's grounded in in science and uh, real conservation 
Yeah. I agree. I feel like I, I, in a lot of ways, have like the luckiest job in terms of being able to message because we have a conservation success story. We have been part of working with all these other entities, a conservation success story. So we can say to people, we know what works. It isn't that we don't know, you know, a lot of times we don't know the answer. When COVID-19 started, we didn't know what we could do. You know, we had to gather all that data. We know what works. There's a proven model that's out there. We just now need the ability, like you're saying, to take it to other places and to scale up. And so, you know, we can, we can give people the hope. Look what's happened with mountain gorillas. Let's just do this with other species. And will you help us get there? And will you come along with us? And, and we can, we can, we've, we've shown you that it works. So now let's, let's do this in more places. So I feel very lucky that I can give people that message of hope. But at the end of the day, we have to start yesterday. We have no time to waste. So the fact that there's still an argument about whether climate change is affecting our planet to me is amazing. I mean, just this last year, just in the last week with, with the superstorm we had in, um, you know, that hit the, the Gulf Coast. We don't have any time to waste. And so that's the biggest thing. And you were saying earlier, you know, what, what can people do? How do we get people engaged? I think one of the most important things I feel right now is that being informed and voting for people that are going to move these initiatives forward. The difference that I've seen with us rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement in terms of people understanding climate change and then also figuring out, you know, how can we value these forests that are in place and the role that, say, carbon markets, for example, might play. They weren't really on the table five years ago. But now, you know, the the price of a, a metric ton of carbon that's saved in a forest has gone up fivefold because this is now a, a strategy that's back in place. And a lot of that is just who our elected leaders are and what they're prioritizing. And so, even if you're not a, a guard or a tracker all the way in, in Rwanda being that frontline boots on the ground conservation, you can ultimately make their job that much easier by, you know, being educated about these topics and then electing officials that are prioritizing this as a, as a real need, um, not just for our own country, but for the world. I can't think of a better message to not only end this podcast on, but also for World Gorilla Day. I, I just, um, if there was ever a reason why gorillas, why protect them, you just gave it right there. That was brilliant. Thank you. Tara, thank you so... Wait, before we end, can I turn the tables and ask you a question? Okay. I just, you know, I'm always always in awe of people that spent time at Karasoki. And I would just love to hear, like, what was your moment like of seeing gorillas for the first time? Or what's your favorite memory of a gorilla or of your time there? Unfortunately, podcasts don't have visuals, um, but I could pull a picture that is sat on, a, have a have a pegboard. There are two things that are up there. One is an, an old, uh, like hand-colored map of the Virungas. And I mean, I've been all over. Thank you for the question, first of all. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been all over the planet and looking at wildlife and filming things and especially great apes. But I, I love mountain gorillas because they, it, even though I started at Gombe with Chimps, gra- mountain gorillas grabbed my heart. Um, almost mm-hmm. physically did. <laughs> Ziz, Ziz was his name. <laughs> um, he was a huge, huge silverback. But I have this, this map of the Virungas and it sits up there. And the other is the picture of a gorilla peeking through the bush. And it's the very first gorilla that I ever saw. And going up there 
walking up to that place, it it um, it had been a few years after Diane had died, but really nobody was in charge. And it, and and I say that because it was one of the most brilliant times you could have been alive. I just wish I had all the filming gear that I have now, but. Because I got to spend, and you you will definitely appreciate it. I got to spend eight, nine hours a day with the gorillas. There was no hour limit and because there was no one in charge. So I would go out with tra- the trackers and we would just sit with the gorillas all day long. And, and, and this, we went out, this was the first time and it was brutal hiking through that stuff. And... Because as anyone knows who's been with gorillas, I mean, they, they're four wheel drive all the time. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and, and uh, Nemea looked over and he pointed and we heard them all around us. There was, uh, there was, it was group five and they were all around us and you couldn't see a single damn gorilla. And then he pointed like that. And it's this picture I have. And it's the first mountain gorilla I ever saw. This two little eyes, brown eyes peeking through between some leaves. And that's all you see in the photograph. And I just, my heart was taken. And it was, uh, yeah, I, I knew I was coming back and back and back and back and back. But, um, it, it was an amazing, it was an amazing time and it was a troubling time because um, the country was so poor and, um, and then, you know, I, I worked right up to the genocide and, you know, naively we sat in the forest looking at gorillas. We didn't realize what was happening in the country politically and culturally and kind of oblivious to that and which I made a, a vow to never work anywhere and not be more aware of what's happening with people. Because as you were saying earlier, um, we're all part of the equation. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Thank you again very much. This has been such great fun. It's been fun to catch up with you. Um, We should do this more often. Love it. I could talk about gorillas all day. And it's always fun to talk about gorillas with someone who could also talk about gorillas all day. Then I don't feel like I'm boring them. I'd like to thank Tara Stoinski for joining us on this very special day, World Gorilla Day, to share some of her experiences and her thinking about the conservation of gorillas on this planet. Some of what she and the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund are learning could help save not only gorillas, but other great apes on this planet. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes, or of course, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. I'd also like to thank our uh, resident gorilla lover, Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work pulling together another great podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry 